0: Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15. But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. And verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Father, bless now this time. And give us insight, Lord, into your word. Give us perseverance, your word of perseverance. You, you said, Lord, if we keep the word of perseverance, you will keep us from the time of testing which is about to come upon the whole earth. And so, Father, teach us the word of your perseverance. Even tonight, allow us, Father, the strength, the wherewithal, the energy to persevere uh, just through this study. Father, my prayer for our fellowship tonight is that no one will miss a thing. And Lord, that you will implant your words deep into the soil of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the message of the Lord through Zechariah? The Lord remembers. The Lord will bless at the appointed time. Let's do that all together. The Lord remembers the Lord will bless at the appointed time. What that should tell us, before even getting into the second verse of this great, amazing prophecy, is that God is deliberate. He remembers. He will bless at the appointed time. No earlier, no later. God is deliberate. He's not haphazard. He is not arbitrary. He's not caught off guard. He is intentional and well-ordered in all that He does. He's got it down, gang. Unlike us, who through experience, maybe we get a little more ordered in our lives until some catastrophe hits or some problem we face, and then we lose it all. He is always well-ordered, always in control. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Peace as within all the uh, churches of the saints paul writes in 1 corinthians 14:33 ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says he works all things after the counsel of his will i love that verse he works all things after the counsel of his will people go to counselors who does god go to god because it's his counsel So if the Lord needs to seek a counselor, He's going to seek Himself because He does all things that way. God goes to Himself because the counsel of His will is perfect. Now so far we've covered in Zechariah two of the eight visions that we said are coming between chapter 1 and chapter 6. Two of the eight. We talked about the rider on the red horse. Viewing that, recognizing that writer as a Christophany, a, an Old Testament, if you will, appearance of Jesus. And then we talked about the horns and the craftsmen on Sunday, especially focusing on the men of our fellowship. The horns and the craftsmen, and again, what, what better uh, focus? What more manly study? Horns and craftsmen, yes. <laughs> and that second vision deals with the throwing down of the nations And it amplifies what the Lord already well-ordered in the book of Zechariah. Again, chapter 1, verse 15, He had already said, I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. But while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. And so the vision of the horns and the craftsmen reveal God's response, his, His anger with the nations, what He does about it. In the same way, the Lord... In the third vision, uh, the, the Lord connects the third vision to the following verse. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So the third vision, the man with the measuring line. Rider on the red horse, horns and the craftsman, and now the man with the measuring line. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And so I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to that young man. Now the first thing we've got to get down with this vision is who's who. Because we have several characters in play, several uh, personas here. We've got a man with a measuring line, the first person that Zachariah sees, and apparently we've got a couple of angels interacting, and then we have a young man. So let's take these characters in reverse order. First of all, let's understand who the young man is there in verse 4. Hebrew word for young man. This is going to surprise some of you. Perhaps. The Hebrew word for young man is na'ar. It's a very specific word. It is a word that is used anywhere for a boy from infancy through adolescence. Okay, so we're talking about a boy, a lad, or a youth. And the oldest that you would call someone a na'ar would be late adolescence. So what's surprising about that? Most conservative scholars believe, and I agree, that the the young man in this vision is Zechariah. What does that tell us? It tells us that Zechariah, probably the majorest of the minor prophets, the one with the biggest message, the one with the most amazing messianic end-time scenario that he gets to bring, is perhaps the youngest of all the minor prophets that when he got these eight visions on this night in 520 B.C., Zechariah was very likely 18 or 19 years old. That blows my mind. Now Paul did tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. But what I realize with this is the greatest wisdom we have doesn't come from study. It doesn't come from maturity. It doesn't come from age. It doesn't come from experience. True wisdom comes from the Lord. I read Zechariah, and if I didn't know that he was a naar, a, a young man, a, a late teenager perhaps, if I didn't know this, I would count him among the wisest of the prophets. I would look at the way he writes. His use of language The word picture is given to him by the Lord and I would say this is one of the old wise men, but he's a teenager. That's incredible. How can a young man keep his way pure, the Bible asks, Psalm 119 verse 9, by keeping it according to your word. And the point is very simply this, you can be a dumb kid or you can be a wise lad. You can be a discerning senior saint or you can be an old fool. (laughs) <laughs> and the thing that makes the difference is the word of the Lord in your life are you speaking the words of God I, talking with our staff this morning I was telling everybody don't forget as seasons shift as things change into this, this new facility into this, these new days ahead of us don't forget your primary responsibility is to speak the word of God and not the word of you I don't sit up here to speak the word of Rick because if I did after a while, you guys would be going, I'm getting hungry because there's no substance to this. But God's word... God's Word will feed the hungry soul and God's Word is wisdom to the youth, to the old man, and to everybody in between. Proverbs 2, verse 6, The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Oh, if I had only learned that as a young man. (laughs) Trying so hard through study and job experience and putting myself forward trying so hard to be respected and wondering why it never works and you know what i've learned that now at this age when i'm disrespected i deserve every ounce of it <laughs> but when i'm respected 99.9% of the time it's because i've just been i've just finished speaking the word of the lord there is wisdom wisdom worth Listening to. And the wisdom of young Zechariah is that he kept his way according to the word of the Lord. So the young man is Zechariah. That's the fourth person in this, in this grouping. The second and third are interesting. It tells us in verse three that Zechariah is interacting here with a couple, at least a couple of angels. Verse three, he refers to the angel who's speaking to me. He refers to another angel. Uh, or another angel that comes out to the angel who was speaking to him who's going out. This other angel comes up and tells the angel speaking to him, run tell this young man what's up here. We'll see what's up in just a minute. And this is confusing. Um, it's one of those, to be honest, kind of hazy areas in prophecy where we got to be careful that we don't try to nail down these two angels too specifically because we might find ourselves to be wrong. I went through a number of different commentators just trying to get a little help on this one. Because it appears to me that the angel speaking with him is the angel of the Lord from the first couple of visions that he's already seen. Isn't that the angel that's communicating with him? But you'll see in a minute why that can't be right. So there must be at some point here another angel who's speaking with Zechariah when a third angel comes up. As this angel goes out, third angel comes up and says, hey, go go speak to that young man. And neither of the two angels are the angel of the Lord, the, the Malach Yahweh, you know, the, the Christophany, that, that vision or, or that, that appearance of Christ. So if neither one are that, what's going on here? Understand just this. That there are two angels is unquestioned. But whether one of these is the man with the measuring line is unnecessary even to know. What we need to get from this and from these two angels is that they are functioning in their appointed roles. one is speaking with Zachariah. Why? Because that's what he was supposed to be doing. Another one comes out with a message for the first angel to go back and speak with Zechariah. Why? Because that's what he was told to do. What we get here with these angels and among the prophets is a glimpse of heavenly divine order, almost almost military order of well-established chain of command. And we see that with angelic beings in the scriptures. There's a chain of command and they know their place. There's a group of angels who forgot their place, wasn't there? And they fell with Satan. But those who are of the Lord, those who are with the Lord, know their place, their position. The Roman centurion understood that much. Centurion came to Jesus and he said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And Jesus was so impressed with his faith. Why? Because he understood military order? No, because he came to Jesus saying, Look, I'm way under you. I don't deserve to have you in my house. You just say go, and I know the sickness that is in my servant off at a distance will go. Well, that's faith. That's amazing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so we've got these angels at work here. Who they are, what their names are, we'll find out. Not tonight, but we'll find out. You know, the Lord will make that clear if you're so inclined. Although I think so many of the questions that we have for God, when we get to heaven, Whatever. Who cares? I don't care what angels those were. I care who he is, and he, gang, is the man with the measuring line. He is the focal point of the vision. I do believe the man with the measuring line is the rider on the red horse from chapter one, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Christ Jesus Himself. This is that same man. Only here, he's got a massive tape measure. And he is measuring the boundaries of Jerusalem. And this is what Zechariah sees in the vision. This this man measuring out Jerusalem. Paul calls him the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5, as we talked about Sunday. And Jesus' favorite self-designation was son of man. In chapter 6, when we get there, you're going to hear Zechariah call him the man, Branch. The man called branch. And we'll begin talking about the branch perhaps on Sunday. Now I know I know there are those who would say, Rick, you're being too free with this Jesus in the Old Testament thing. You just see him everywhere. And I would say, you're right, I do see him everywhere. (laughs) Because he's there. Because he's present. And because the proof is in the scriptures. The more we dig, the more we see Jesus present in the Hebrew Scriptures. The man with the measuring line is not new with Zechariah. If you've been in our Bible studies over the last several months, maybe over the last year or two, you've already seen the man with the measuring line because he was introduced in the same form to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon through the prophet Ezekiel. And this is how we know who we're talking about here. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3, Behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway, that is, in Ezekiel's vision, the gateway of the millennial temple complex. And if you didn't go through our study of Ezekiel 40 through about 43, you got to go back and listen to that. Because it will blow your mind right out the top of your head it's remarkable the description of what we call the millennial temple the temple of Christ Jesus during the thousand year reign that will be built there in Jerusalem and as Ezekiel's vision unfolds this man proceeds to measure the temple complex and here the same surveyor is marking off the boundary lines of the capital of the kingdom Jerusalem same guy Why is he surveying the size of the city? Because this is the same one who's about to build it. This is the one who Zechariah tells will not only build the future temple there, but will rule and reign there. Zechariah 6.12, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. My friends, we're about to branch out. And we're going to be talking about that. In fact, the next two Sundays, I'm hoping if we are actually in, and the plan is still going forward a week from Sunday, first service in the new building. So my hope is to bridge the two services with a two-part teaching on branching out. And we'll be talking about those things. But the man with the measuring line's purpose is to survey the borders of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is going to be big. It's going to be huge. The temple complex itself is overwhelming. The city is remarkable. Picking up then with run, speak to that young man, that Naar, Zachariah, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. A multitude of men and a bevy of bovines. <laughs> and there's going to be so many... You really can't have a wall because they're just going to keep spreading out. Now for you prophecy buffs, that phrase there is interesting, without walls, is literally perizot in the Hebrew meaning unwalled villages. And because of the use of this word, which is only specifically used in a couple of places in the Hebrew Scriptures, perizot, the, the, the city or the land of unwalled villages. Some have said, oh... We're talking about Israel right before the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38, right? Because Ezekiel tells us that it will be a time of peace and it will be a land of unwalled villages, and that's all well and good except Messiah is here. So it's a land of unwalled villages. Jerusalem would not have walls uh, for a couple of reasons. We're talking about the Millennial Kingdom. And the reasons are twofold. Again, the first is the population base. Men and cows. Isaiah 49.19 says, For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants and those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. And what Isaiah the prophet is indicating is there will be such a mass of Jewish people in Jerusalem at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, people are going to be saying, we need more room. Why would you build a wall and cut yourself off? So this is an unwalled city. A huge city. David Barron, and if you're looking for a great commentary on Zechariah, David Barron's commentary. He wrote in the late 1800s, yeah, I think he died in 1926. It's remarkable to read commentaries from guys who lived at that time before Israel became a nation. Because they all assumed it was about to happen, even though there was no evidence in the world. And Baron wrote this. He said the word perizot, unwalled villages, strictly describes plains or an open country in which there is nothing to circumscribe the inhabitants or to prevent them from spreading themselves abroad. It denotes also a condition of confidence and safety since in danger, men resort to strong cities and fortified towns. And that's true. I've got to give you a little menicy, menicy, a mini-prophecy update. A mini-prophecy update. Because I've been thinking about this over the last week. One of the birth pangs that Jesus talked about. Remember He said there would be birth pangs. And, and, and what birth pangs do is they increase with intensity and they increase in frequency. The birth pangs that Jesus mentioned have all existed over the last 2,000 years. But the issue is, do they come in greater number? And when they come, are they more intense? And what we see with the birth pangs of Christ, well, listen to this. Luke 21, verse 10, he says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Do we see an increase in that? And there will be great earthquakes. Do we see an increase and a frequency in that? Do you know that last month in San Francisco, there were over 600 earthquakes? Measurable earthquakes? And in various places, he says, Plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Plagues and famines are loimos and limos. Plagues and famines. Famines we understand. Plagues is also rendered in some Bible translations, pestilence. And what it refers to is disease. Like Ebola, perhaps. The guy who came into the United States, the one you read about in Texas, died this morning of Ebola. Ebola. Or the enterovirus, D68, which is making a comeback. It was on the hit parade in the 60s, and now it's trying to make a comeback today. And children, in fact, just today, another child died of the enterovirus. Pestilence. Now, think about what we just said. When there's danger, people resort to the cities because they need the protection. But when there's a virus, do you want to resort to a large population base? That's ironic. So what do you do? Flee to the country where you've got the dangers of, like, an ISIS? Or race to the city where you've got the dangers of an Ebola? Wherever you go, the birth pains will find you if you're on the planet at that time. Wars and rumors of wars should drive us in. Plagues and pestilence has the opposite effect of driving us out. Well, none of that will be an issue in the Millennial Kingdom. None of that will be a problem. Walls will be unnecessary. There's going to be plenty of room in Jerusalem for everybody to spread out, men and cows alike. But there's a second and greater reason why there is no wall built for Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom, and that is simply God's got the wall. God's got the wall, verse 5. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 4 says, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. Does that sound familiar? I mean, what guided the Israelites through the wilderness? If not, a a cloud by day and a fire by night. And the cloud protected from the heat of the sun beating down on them. It gave them shade. It gave them comfort. And as long as they stayed under the cloud and went when the cloud went and stopped, when the cloud stopped, it was all good. At night, the warmth of a fire, the brightness of a fire above them, again, protecting. And in the Millennial Kingdom, same thing. Can you imagine approaching Jerusalem from afar? What you will see that great canopy over the city. And it is a work of the Lord God to the glory of His name. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19 says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. So in that age and at that time, He will be the wall around and He will be the glory within. How do we know we're talking about the kingdom here? How do we know this isn't just an encouraging word for Zechariah and the Jews of his day? Well, we know historically there was no wall of fire around Jerusalem. So there you go on that one. But if you need more evidence, look who's talking. Verse 6. Ho there! Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Ho, Zion! Ho, Zion! Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, watch this, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye, the pupil. It's the word in Hebrew, ishon. And it it means pupil. It also is translated the deepest, blackest part of night. Because if you look at the pupil of the eye in the very centre, it is the darkest, obviously the darkest part of the eye. Now, if I started going around and poking at your eyeballs, you'd have a reaction, I'm assuming, most of you. I doubt anyone would just sit there and go, Go ahead, take it, go poke me, go ahead. And God says, That's how I feel about Jerusalem. As protective as you are of your eyes, I am that protective of Jerusalem, my holy city and of my people Deuteronomy 32 verse 10 says speaking of Israel he found him in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness he encircled him he cared for him he guarded him as the ishon the pupil of his eye but there's more here why is the lord calling for his people to flee babylon This is spoken through Zechariah the prophet, right? 520 B.C. The people have been given free reign to leave. It's written down. I mean, it's been decreed. It was decreed by Cyrus. That decree was upheld by Darius. Go. Go home. You can build your temple. Even build up a wall. Artaxerxes will give Nehemiah the the, the decree to do that. They could leave Babylon any time they want. Why is the Lord telling them flee from Babylon. Is this a prophecy perhaps for those who are still in Babylon? Who had yet to return? Or is it a prophecy calling for the flight of a people in Babylon yet future? Keep your finger there and turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation is not a hard book to find in the Bible. You're going to find it close to the end usually right before the concordance, or the book of concordance, if you want to call it that. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird who migrated there from the barn. (laughs) Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Listen, come out of her, my people. "...so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities." That's what Zechariah is talking about. That's what the Lord of hosts is referring to when He says, flee My people from Babylon. Not something that happened in the past, but something that is yet future, that is going to happen. And will it be literal Babylon in that time of tribulation? When the whole world is in upheaval, I think it probably will. There are other perspectives on that, other possibilities. But whatever it is, there is going to be a a capital, if you will, of Antichrist. There's going to be a center point of His government. And there are going to be believers, people who have come to faith in Jesus during that time in that city who need to hear the message of the angel saying, get out. Flee. And it's the same type of word that is used back in Zechariah chapter 2. You can go back there. Flee from the land of the north. Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. And this places us squarely then toward the end of the tribulation. That's what this young man's talking about as he relates, recounts the words, the words of the Lord of hosts. Zechariah's prophecy was encouraging to his people, absolutely. But it primarily speaks of the person and the mission of Messiah in the last days. And this becomes more and more evident the deeper we go into the book that this prophet is talking about something that is coming and it would come just over 2,500 years later. The Lord remembers. The Lord will bless at the appointed time. Going on in verse 9, "...for behold, I will wave my hand over them, so that they will be plunder for the slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me." Wait a minute. Who's talking? I thought it was the Lord of hosts. Note this, it is the Lord of hosts talking. But it's also the one whom the Lord of hosts will send. Because he says, "...you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me." I mean, it's like David writing in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai. And here when we read that the Lord of hosts, in verse 9, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, the Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh has sent me. But if you go back up to verse 6, Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. That declares Yahweh. Yahweh's the one speaking. Yahweh says Yahweh? Yes. That's exactly what we're saying here. Verse 10, continuing. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. How is that possible? Many nations will join themselves to the Lord, to Yahweh in that day, and will become my people. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. If they're joined to Yahweh, how can they be your people? Unless the one speaking is Yahweh. Keep going. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Yahweh sending Yahweh. Verse 12. The Lord will possess Judah and his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Gang, this is Jesus on the line. This is Christ calling. 524 years before Messiah's first coming, he is speaking through Zechariah of his second coming. Wow! You see why I say this? This young man, Zechariah, is bringing a powerful word. And in my Bible, I went ahead and underlined everything that's spoken here by the Lord who's coming, the Lord who sent me, saying, I am coming, I will dwell in your midst, all of that. I underlined it all in red because I think this should be red letters here. Oh, Rick, it's just more of that Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yes, praise the Lord! This all fits together. I am coming. I will dwell in your midst. You will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and Jesus is the one Yahweh sends because He is the person in the flesh, God in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So then the Lord Jesus, who is speaking here, turns to the world and in verse 13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. Now this is the third time in the Minor Prophets That we've heard this command, and it is in the command form. In fact, all three times, the phrase be silent is in the command form of the Hebrew. We see it here from Zechariah. We see it in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. Before Him. All three prophecies bearing that command, be silent. In the Hebrew it's hus. Which sounds a lot like our hush. And I wonder if Jesus had this Hebrew word in mind when He rebuked the wind and the sea saying, hush, be still. Hus in the Hebrew. And it does mean hush, but it's a much more severe and solemn form of hush. It's not like a mother or father tucking a kid in at night and saying, hush, go to sleep. No, it's hush! There are stronger ways of saying that in our language. Shut up. Shut up. Well, God wouldn't say that. I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop. You know the scene I'm talking about? If you've seen the movie, here's this tough cop, and he's in there, and these kindergartners are running crazy, screaming and yelling, and he finally loses control, and in the middle of the classroom, Arnold Schwarzenegger goes, SHUT UP! (laughs) And the kids all all start crying. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. Hush! The Word says three times from the miners and here comes Zechariah saying it again. Hush! Jesus says it to the winds and the waves and everything goes glass. When the Lord says it through Zechariah, my friends, He is not speaking to the elements. He is speaking to flesh. And that's interesting. Hush, he says to all flesh. Be silent, all flesh. All flesh is kalbisar in the Hebrew. doesn't matter if you write down the words, but what it means is soft tissue. It's a way of describing humanity that points out our frailty. It points out our, our nakedness before God. Hush, soft tissue people. <laughs> <laughs> David Barron writes, This is not only a universal term for all mankind, it's meant to express the weakness and impotence of man in the presence of Almighty God. We think we're so tough. Horns and craftsmen, you know? We got it. Yeah, we can can build a church building. We're tough. We can do what it takes to make this thing happen. We'll pull our heads together and we'll get it done. And we are soft tissue. We are flesh. The other time in the Scriptures that this word is is used in a similar way, it's not the same word, but it's the similar uh, sentiment, Psalm 46.10. Cease striving, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Has anyone noticed how noisy it's getting? Mockers coming with their mocking. Those who are scorning the beauty and the simplicity of Christianity while upholding Islam and saying we need to be careful with the Muslim. You know, give them plenty of girth, but, but you Christians need to quiet down. Brash, arrogant humanity. That's one of the things. Jesus didn't claim this as a birth pang, but you know what? I see it as a birth pang. Humanity's getting noisier and noisier and dumber and dumber and dumberer. <laughs> Arrogant. How, how dare we? How dare we get all up in the face of God as if in our pink soft tissue there's any way that we could stand. We will melt to the ground when we come into His presence. We will fall on our faces. And the... Noise of, of mankind will fall to the voice of God. You know, the last time we heard the voice of Jesus, the last time it was recorded specifically, was followed by agreement from John the Apostle. Revelation twenty two twenty one says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And John said, Amen! Come, Lord Jesus! And we haven't heard a word spoken, not in terms of Scripture, since it's been very quiet and the noise of sinful man is just increasing and some think or have proposed that perhaps the lord is asleep or there are those who have said god is dead especially among the jewish jewish segment of of culture which is sad to me No, we believe there was a God at one time. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but perhaps He died because He certainly isn't talking to us now. And it kind of raises the question. I'm I'm going to sidetrack for a second here. Why didn't He come quickly? Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. Well, why didn't you? According to my watch, it's been a long time. It's been 2,000 years. And you said, behold, I'm coming quickly. And with John, I say, Amen. Why didn't you come a week later? That would have been quick. Or within the first year from saying that, that might have been quick before we even crossed into the first hundred years of the, of the of the ADs. That would have been quick. You Bible students know the phrase quickly. Yes, I am coming quickly in the Greek is in taxi, which means when Jesus comes, He's going to come in a taxi. <laughs> That's how you get somewhere quickly. You know? in taxi means in a moment it means suddenly it means quickly and when he comes he's going to come so fast and so suddenly many people will not see him coming at all yes I'm coming and when I come you better be ready he didn't say anything about the fact that it it might be a thousand years two thousand years or more He just says, I'm coming quickly, and His coming will be. Just keep that in mind. He has told us, in fact, He told us 2,520 years ago that when He is aroused from His holy habitation, all pathetic, wimpy, podgy human flesh will be silent. Why not be silent now? Why not approach the Lord in silent reverence, in holy worship, in awe? And brothers and sisters in Christ, I've encouraged you with this before. Let me say it again. If you are having struggles in your life, do not shake your fist at God. Just get quiet. And bow down before Him. Best thing to do when you are having crises in your life is worship Him in all of His splendor. Get quiet before Him. Bend the knee. Bow the head to Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting is by now the prophet is three visions in on a night of visions. It's taken us this long ourselves just to read through this. But he's now seen three. And as we get to chapter 3, he's seen the rider on the red horse. He has seen the horns and the craftsmen who tear out those horns. He's seen now the man with the measuring rod. In other words, God's not through with Israel. In all these visions, the message keeps coming back loud and clear. I've got Israel. I'm going to deal with the nations. I am going to measure out Jerusalem. It's going to be glorious. And at this point, you got to wonder if the prophet isn't starting to wonder himself, how can this be? Put yourself in the sandals of Zechariah in 520 B.C. What did Jerusalem look like? There was no temple. Remember, at the same time, Haggai is trying to get the people to get off their couches and build, but there's no temple. There's a foundation, perhaps a few scraps of lumber. The city itself, demolished, devastated after Babylon's smashing of it. And and he's getting these visions of glory and splendor and God's protection and God's grace and God's mercy. And if I was Zechariah, especially as a young man, as a teenager, I'd be going, it doesn't make sense. How is this possible? Back in chapter 1, verse 15, I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. And we read this, and we look at Zechariah, and we look at how God has dealt with Israel over the years, and I don't know how anyone can look at that and not believe in grace. We've seen the forgiveness, the mercy, the offer of redemption, the preservation and protection of the Jewish people. But it's been hard. And Zechariah among them must be wondering. I'm guessing here, I don't know this for sure, but I'm just guessing. Must be wondering how can the glory ever come back to my people. Especially because of what we've done. You see, Zechariah, like everybody else, knew full well why they spent the 70 years in Babylon. He was fully aware of the sins of his fathers and even the sins around him. We all are, aren't we? Don't you see the sin that's going on even in your own household? Even if you want to turn a blind blind eye to it. How can Israel be restored and the nations condemned when we have done the same as they? Vision number four. the filthy priest. The filthy priest. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What's interesting is in the literal Hebrew what it says is Satan standing at his right hand to Satan him. It's the same word. One is a proper noun, Satan, The other one is used as a a, a verb to Satan him, to do something to him. And it it literally means satan. It means to resist or be opposed to or to accuse. And so we read that. He's standing at the right hand to accuse him. Well, that's what Satan does, isn't it? That's why he has the name, Satan, adversary, adversary one who sets himself against, one who accuses and understand and know Satan is against the people of God, period. That does not change. It will not change in your lifetime until Jesus come again. Satan is opposed to the people of God. So don't be surprised when an attack comes. Don't be surprised when he tries to undermine you. Don't be surprised when he sends one of his own demons to just discourage you, to bum you out, to pull you back from your faith. Satan is opposed to God's people and he is the accuser, Revelation 12.10 tells us, the accuser of our brethren. Let me read Revelation 12.10 and 11 to you. Because it's good news. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. He is the accuser. Verse 2 going on says, The Lord said to Satan. Now back up a bit. Here's the vision. Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? It's a Christophany. Again, this is the Malach Yahweh. This is Jesus. So Joshua the high priest, four important people at this time, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel the governor, and Joshua the high priest. Yeshua the high priest, ironically. And Joshua is there, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, accusing him, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, before we get to the brand, this is so amazing to me. Did you catch the wording? Yahweh says, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, in other words, uses His own name in the rebuke of Satan. I understand us using God's name. I understand us praying, in the name of Jesus, leave me alone. Get thee behind me, Satan, in the name of Jesus Christ. I understand us calling out His name because we're paltry human flesh, right? We need a greater name. This is amazing. God Himself, in rebuking Satan, uses God's own name. When He says this to Satan, He says, Yahweh rebuke you. Why? Why? There is power in the name. Power in the name of God. Where do you think Michael got the idea in the first place? Michael, the archangel. In one of the more curious verses in Scripture, in the little book of Jude, verse 9, says, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you! Where did Michael get the idea for that? He heard it from the Lord. Yahweh rebuke you, calling on the inherent authority of the very name of God. If the devil is accusing you, and you know he's accusing you when there's shame, when there's guilt, when you're just wallowing in self pity, that's coming with the accusation of the enemy. That step is not of the Lord. We were over here praying just a little while ago. And one of our sisters was saying, you know, I just, I don't, I I look at what we could be doing versus what we're not doing. This is not a direct quote, but she was in, you know, just expressing there's so much more we could do to save lost people in this world. And yet we all get wrapped up in our lives. And I'm listening and I'm going, you know what? What Christians tend to do with that is we start to feel guilty for not being evangelistic and in our guilt end up doing nothing. Oh, I'm just, I'm just a terrible Christian. That's all. Where are we going for lunch today? <laughs> guilt is a lousy motivator. Grace is a marvelous motivator. Because the more you know God's grace, the more you want to tell people about God's grace. So here comes the devil and he's accusing. And if all the weight of guilt and shame is rushing in and is sitting heavy on you, Forgiven, graced people of Jesus, rebuke Satan in the name of the Lord. Start right there. You're feeling that? Just say, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Whoever you are shaming me right now, the Lord rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. I am blood bought by Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I do not belong to the enemy. I do not belong to the sins of the past. I belong to Jesus Christ. You just speak the name of Jesus and the demons flee. In fact, the Bible tells us at the mention of His name, the devil will flee. Rebuke in the name of the Lord. His name is the most powerful. But the Lord rebukes and then He says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What's He talking about? Or who is He talking about? Well, he's referring back to Joshua the high priest, right? Kind of. Kind of. Understand that the high priest always stands as a representative of the people. And so the vision of the filthy priest here, which we'll get further into in just a second, the vision of Joshua the priest is a vision, a picture in type, a one-man picture of the entire people of Israel. So when he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He's not just talking about Joshua the priest. He's talking about his people. He's talking about all of Israel together. A brand plucked from the fire. Definition of a brand or a fire brand. What we're talking about here is a piece of charred, smoldering wood. And he refers to Joshua. So get the picture. Joshua is standing there before Jesus. Satan is accusing him first thing God does is say the Lord rebuke you second thing he does is say look at Joshua is this not a brand plucked from the fire what's the point Joshua is like a piece of charred wood here's the good news he's not all burned up oh he's smoking he's been through a rough time he's hot but there's still wood here there is still Israel here Israel is not destroyed you're sitting here accusing my people My people are back in the land. And I would add, you moron. Now he doesn't. (laughs) They had been through the fires of Babylon, and God plucked them out of it, burned and charred, but they are still recognizably God's people Israel. That is marvelous. Because this people should have been wiped out. Every other people Babylon conquered were. In fact, down through history, students of history and Bible, you know this. 200 years outside of your native land, when a people is driven out, all it takes is 200 years, and they disappear from the face of the earth. They just become part of what other people groups, whatever people groups they've they've joined. And that culture disappears. Israel is the only nation in history to have been outside their land longer than 200 years, closer to 2,000 years, and have remained a people. Who can do that? Who is up to that? Let me give you a little hint. It's not Israel. It's God. And He has kept His people. He has plucked them over and over and over. He has plucked them out of the fire. He plucked them out of the fires of Babylon. He plucked them out of the fires of Rome. He plucked them out of the fires of Hitler. Talk about the fires. Bible even tells us they would go through the fire time and time again, but they would always be that firebrand who are pulled out before they are burned up. Psalm 102, verse 3, For my days have been consumed in smoke, and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. And there are those who think, and I'm one of them, that Psalm 102 was a prophecy of the Holocaust. Read it. It's amazing. Think about that old symbol for Israel. What was it that Moses saw on the mountainside? A bush that burns but is not consumed. Israel. A picture of a people that God protects. And that's what the firebrand means. But the vision is not of a smoking firebrand. God is just using that as a descriptive phrase. The vision, remember, is of a filthy priest. Verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Which angel? The angel of the Lord. The Malach Yahweh. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Okay, so now the angel is speaking. I believe Christ. And what does he say? Remove the filthy garments from him. Isn't that what Jesus says? I mean, isn't that what Jesus does? He is the one who removes the filthy garments. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. Take us away. But Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. With a robe of righteousness he has wrapped me as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And in this vision, the answer of the Lord to the accusations of Satan is to clothe his people with righteousness. Satan's accusing Joshua. In other words, Satan's accusing Israel. And God says... I rebuke you and watch this. And he wraps them up in righteousness. And gang, that's what he does for you. See, Satan accuses you. And Jesus comes along and he pours his blood on you. And those accusations can no longer stick. Because now what was once filthy is wrapped in grace. The favor of the Father. In fact, the the word says here, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Mahalat Sa in the Hebrew, which means priestly robes. So here's this high priest, this picture of a filthy high priest. You don't go into the temple if you're filthy. You've got to be washed and cleaned. You put on the clean uh, white linen and you go and dress right. But Joshua's standing there covered in filth. And Jesus... Angel of the Lord says, remove that garment and put on him a festal robe, and it is a high priestly robe. And there are those who believe this goes beyond the idea of just pardon and justification for Israel, that it really is talking about the reinstatement, the reconsecration of Israel and their to their priestly calling in the New Kingdom. Now, now get this, because it's huge. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. The Lord said, Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. God tells Moses, Tell the people, I want the whole nation of you, not just Levi. I want the whole nation of you to be priests before Me. And you will be a nation of priests in the world for all the nations of the world. And they blew it. Golden calf. And what happened at the end of that? God says to Moses, tell the people, those who are with me, stand with me, and those who are against me, stand against me. And the Levites stood with Moses. And the Levites took out their swords and they slaughtered all those who were in opposition to God in that moment that day. And God said, the Levites will be my priests. But not the people anymore. And suddenly here, In this vision, we see Joshua, the high priest. The filth is removed. The the, the priestly garments are now put on. And I truly believe that in the kingdom of Christ, Israel will be the priestly nation before all the nations of the earth. The Jewish people. Now, some of you might go, okay, wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to be the priests. And now you're telling me that Israel is supposed to be a priestly nation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. I might jot this down and note this. Revelation chapter 5 verse 10 and Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. 1, 6, 5, 10, 20 verse 6. Three times in the book of Revelation it talks about our priestly role in the millennial kingdom. Three times it declares that we will will rule and reign with him as his priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests. So aren't we supposed to be this this royal priesthood in the kingdom? The answer is yes. But Rick, you just said the Israelites are going to be the priestly kingdom. Yes. We can't have both. Here's the deal. The church will be the kingdom of priests on the glorified side of things and Israel will be the kingdom of priests on the earthly side of things. So that nation will once again be a reinstated priestly nation which was God's intention in the very beginning. No wonder they're a brand plucked from the fire. Because God is still working out His will in them. Wow. Zachariah sees all of this. And he starts to get excited. And he jumps in. Verse 5. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. (laughs) He's pumped because he's recognizing something. Joshua, our representative, has just been cleansed by the Lord. He's got the right robe on, but he needs the turban. the, The mitra of the high priest. So he shouts out, put a clean turban on! And here's the response. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Why a turban with a robe? Because Zechariah recognized that's what the priest needs. Maybe you're among those who say, I need a little more proof, Rick. Okay, let's turn over to the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 44. Or you can just listen. But Ezekiel... 44. I've already established that back in Ezekiel 40, the man with the measuring line is going about the temple courts and measuring it out. He does so for three chapters, and it's marvelous. And then in chapter 44 of the prophet Ezekiel, verse 15, remember Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon to the exiles after the fall of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 44.15, "...but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me. And they shall stand before me and offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. It shall be that when they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments..." And wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court and in the house. Linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. (laughs) God doesn't like stinky. (laughs) Because again, that soft, pasty human skin doesn't smell so good when we got wool all over it for too long. So, linen garments... And here we see the sons of Zadok, a very special group of priests we talked about back in our study of Ezekiel. And they've got the linen garments and they've got the turban. And here, Zechariah, back in the book, recognizes that. He sees that. He calls for the turban. And now we have a turbaned and a robed Joshua, the high priest. But he's not just a representative of the sons of Zadok. He's a representative of all Israel. The priestly nation. God restoring What he intended in the first place. Verse 6 of Zechariah chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Free access. To what? what do we get like backstage passes in Jerusalem? Like we can go behind the, the scenes in the temple? That would be cool. It's free access to the <coughs> Lord Himself. Free access to Jesus. If you will do these things, these simple things, two things, if you'll walk in My ways and perform my service remember in Israel the high priest alone had free access to Yahweh and then only once a year on Yom Kippur and then with trepidation going behind the veil with a rope tied around his ankle in case he died in there so they could pull him out and little tinkling bells around his robe so they could hear him and know he's still alive I mean it was a frightening thing and one man, fully washed and consecrated, was allowed to do this. And now the Lord says, you know what? If you do these things, free access for all of you. Remember, the veil was torn by the blood of Christ, opening up access to the Lord. This will be the key to the constant access of a holy people. Walk in my ways and perform my service. And my friends, we have that access right now. We don't even have to wait for it. You have immediate and free access to come before the throne of grace boldly to seek help in time of need. The veil was torn, as I said, and so what do we do? We walk in the Spirit and we perform the service of the Word of God. We walk in His ways and we perform His service. We listen to His Spirit, walking with the Spirit, and we perform His service. We tell the Gospel... We share the word of truth in this world. Maybe you've been burned by bad behavior. Maybe you feel like a brand plucked out of the fire. Maybe you were singed by sin. Charred by wrong choices. But in Jesus Christ, you are that brand. Pulled out. I mean, look around. You want proof? We're still here. But more than that, by the grace of God the punishing fires that we deserved have not consumed us because Jesus has plucked us out of the fire and every person saved, washed, cleansed by the blood work of Jesus at Calvary every person saved by the work of the cross is plucked from the fire so why do things still heat up? I mean, they do, don't they? We still have persecution. We still have problems. We still still have struggles in our lives. We should expect to. In fact, we should expect things to heat up more than they ever have here in these last days. Paul says to believers that all things built on the foundation of Christ will be tested with fire to see what's going to last. This barn's going to burn up. That building over there is going to burn up. What's going to last? What of the ministry of this fellowship by the working of His Holy Spirit and the speaking of His Word? What is going to last? It's every single individual soul that comes to faith in Jesus. You want to work for a work that's going to last? Bring someone to Christ. That's everlasting. Paul compares that to gold, silver, and precious stones. Most of the time that we spend in our lives has to do with wood, hay, and straw. You know, a lot of our jobs, a lot of the things that we busy ourselves with, wood, hay, and straw, they're going to burn up. They're not going to last. There's nothing of lasting value to them. Loving people, sharing the gospel with people, seeing a brother or a sister, a mother, a friend saved, that's eternal. You can be among those who pluck the brand out of the fire before they are consumed. Paul says 1 Corinthians 3.15 if any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire which has made me wonder if some people are going to arrive in heaven still smelling a little smoky. (laughs) Jude seems to pick up on this by the Spirit of the Lord in a call to all Christ followers, he writes, Jude 22, that you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, if he stopped right there, we could just stay here all together all the time. And we would never have to preach the gospel. And we would never have to worry about whether or not someone living next door to me is saved. But Jude continues... Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. It's as though Jude were just reading Zechariah. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, verse 8, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are assembled. For behold, I am about to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. What does all that mean? We'll talk about it Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for the disappointment I just saw in Debbie's eyes as I said we're going to wait. Because, Lord, it just tells me that we are hungry to know. We want to know what You're up to. We want to know Your Word. We want revelation and illumination and understanding. So, Father, I pray that You'd speak to us. And Father, if we don't make it till Sunday, we're all going to know exactly what that meant. And if we do, reveal it to us then. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen.